Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. I'm the executive director here at the Initiative. And it's my great pleasure to welcome to our podcast Alex Sundakov. He's the executive director of Castalia Advisors in Sydney. Hi, Alex. Yeah, greetings. Now, for our listeners, you lead Castalia Advisors Capital Investment Advisory work in Australia. You joined Castalia after a career spanning the New Zealand Treasury, the International Monetary Fund, and you were serving also for a while as chief executive of the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, NZIER. But that's not why we invited you onto the podcast today. We invited you because you spent your early life, years of life in the Soviet Union. You grew up and finished school in New Zealand. You were educated in the UK and you've lived and worked in the US and Australia. But also for the past 30 years, you've had a very intense relationship with Ukraine. You first visited Ukraine, as far as I know, in 1992, and you've visited many, many times, including a time where you were the International Monetary Fund's representative in Kiev. And of course, we want to talk about Ukraine, but first, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your life and your relationship with both Russia and Ukraine. Um, well, as far, as far as Russia is concerned, um, I think I was just uh, incredibly fortunate that my parents um, had the sense to, to leave the Soviet Union when I, when I was still young. Um, and I, I didn't grow up there, but um, I, I speak Russian and uh, uh, also have an interest in, in, in Russian culture. Um, and after a period of um, uh, relative optimism about where, where Russia might be going, where it seemed to be liberalizing, that was a very, very short and, uh, uh, and, and kind of unfortunate period that's been followed by, um, you know, really return to everything that's the worst about Russia. Um, I, uh, and, you know, uh, I'll probably be showing my bias, but um, I, 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 my sense has been that, that I've observed exactly the opposite um, uh, in relation to Ukraine. So my, my first trip to Ukraine was uh, working for the International Monetary Fund. Um, I was based in Washington, D.C., and I started working on the team that was negotiating the first stabilization program for Ukraine. So I was shuttling back and forth between uh, Washington and Kiev in, uh, in the early 90s. And then um, in 1994, um, IMF posted me to Kiev as the resident representative. Uh, and my job was to kind of keep the, the day-to-day relationship between the IMF and the, and the government of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it was very interesting. At, th- at that time, when, um, uh, uh, when I first uh, went to Ukraine, um, I-, I had this uh, a real sense of disconnect where, uh, in, in one sense, I spoke the language. I, I mean, I understand Ukrainian reasonably well now, uh, and everybody spoke Russian around me. Um, so I, I could understand people linguistically, but it, it felt to me like they came from another planet. In, in what uh, way? Our underlying attitudes, our experiences, the, the kind of the sense of how we perceived what's, what's reasonable behavior, what's not reasonable behavior, attitudes to personal freedom, attitudes to the relationship between living in a country and kind of how you interact with the rest of the world. They were, they were fundamentally different. I mean, Ukraine, in many ways, was even more Soviet than, than the rest of the Soviet Union. Kind of the more metropolitan parts of the Soviet Union, like, like, like Moscow had, uh, or St. Petersburg, had more connection to the rest of the world. So whereas Ukraine was very much a, an isolated, um, isolated province at the time. And that would have been um, quite different from the other transformation countries. I mean, the Poles were very freedom-loving. The Baltic states were quite keen to move towards uh, Western-style democracy and capitalism. So Ukraine was different? It was very different, and it was different because 
Um, I think that the, the other countries were under Soviet domination for a much shorter period of time. Right. Um, so you still had a, a, a large part of the population with a memory of what independence meant mm-hmm. um, and a memory of kind of functioning market institutions and functioning civil society. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ukraine really didn't have that memory at all. Uh, may, may, maybe a little bit in the west of Ukraine, but, but, but certainly in, uh, in central Ukraine, uh, it was the most Sovietized part of the country. And, and still um, it was a country that had voted um, overwhelmingly for independence. It, it did. So it, it definitely had a sense of, of cultural desire for independence. But it didn't really, I think, uh, my, my feeling at that time was that it didn't really know what to do with that independence. It was a, uh, initially, I think, uh, what, what, what I saw was a, an attempt to kind of recreate a little bit of Soviet Union, but with a uh, separate language and a separate flag. But I think what's been absolutely fascinating to me, and I've, I've stayed very close, closely connected to Ukraine. So uh, after I left the IMF, came back to New Zealand, I kept uh, working, doing advisory assignments in Ukraine. Um, and over the last 10 years or so, I mean, prior to COVID, I would typically be in Ukraine three or four times a year, working on various commercial deals, as well as advising governments on, on, on uh, infrastructure policy. So uh, that, that connections remain very close. I've, I've known a lot of uh, uh, top decision makers. Um, and But to me, kind of really what's been uh, absolutely amazing is to see Ukraine transform into a kind of a fundamentally Western country. So so whereas, uh, as I said, 30 years ago, you had this almost nightmarish quality of understanding what people were saying, but yet feeling that they're completely from a different planet. Now, they felt to me like I completely understood them. They made perfect sense. Their their lives, their expectations, the way they were integrated with the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. uh, the way the institutions functioned, all made sense. You know, it was a, a fractious uh, democracy that people constantly fought with each other. The uh, political parties were numerous and uh, um, and uh, disagreements were numerous. And there was the, the kind of the usual political tribalism you see in, in, in most democratic societies, but but it's a society that worked and very much worked from below. You know, I think it's interesting sort of translating that to, um, to what's happening right now. At the start of the war, when, when the Russians invaded, there was a, kind of the uh, fear that, that they would kill Zelensky. Um, but I think the fundamental difference between Russia and Ukraine is that if somebody killed Putin today, Russia would be, become a different country. Mm-hmm. If somebody killed Zelensky today, nothing really would change. Um, you know, I mean, I think he, he's obviously played an important role. He's been a, very much a, a leader from the front, and, that, and that's been important. But, uh, but he, all he's been doing has been expressing the popular will. Um, and so if something happens to him, the society, the institutional society would, would, would remain the same and, and would function the same. So, that, um, the, so if I may just yes, comment, um, the path that you described that Ukraine took in the last 25, 30 years, that was a pathway that Russia initially was on as well. I mean, Russia... Certainly in the 1990s, not a perfect country by any means, but they made steps towards a liberal democracy. They made steps towards capitalism and markets, however imperfect, but they were on that path until about, what, 1999. And even the first few years of Putin, there was still a bit of hope. But then the two countries have completely taken different paths. And is that the core um, behind this current conflict that Putin as the dictator, as someone who made his country a lot more authoritarian and actually turned it into a dictatorship since, couldn't have this liberal, democratic, Western-oriented competition at his doorstep. I think that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, but again, I, I think that it's hard to tell to what extent Putin took Russia in the direction that he wanted to take it, or rather to what extent he followed the direction where Russia wanted to go. 
and and I think that what what happened in early two thousand was um, a resurgence of of imperial nationalism in Russia, a kind of a redefinition of nationalism. I think that when the Soviet Soviet Union fell apart, and when when Yeltsin is uh, as the president of the Russian Federation accepted uh, Russia's exit from the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, for a while, the, the kind of the liberalism that, that underpinned that exit was based on the idea that every every nation that, that formed the Soviet Union, whether it's uh, uh, Estonians or Latvians or Ukrainians or Russians, they were all um, going to be seeking their own independent future. And, th- and that, I think, for a while uh, worked in Russia and, of course, continued to work in all these other countries. But by about 2000, uh, what the year 2000, what we saw was the revival of, of that imperial mentality that Russia's greatness comes not from economic development or cultural development, but comes from domination of, this, of, of the surrounding countries and, and that it, it had to restore its, its, its imperial control over the surrounding countries. And that was, um, a, that was a fringe view at the beginning of the 1990s. I remember um, there were fringe politicians like Shirinovsky espousing this Russian nationalism, this extreme form of nationalism, really. But they were very much on the fringe, and nobody really took them that seriously at the time. That position has become completely mainstream and has found its embodiment in the later Vladimir Putin, who has actually um, paid homages to Shirinovsky when he died recently. I I think that's partly true, but I think, um, particularly now, observing this war, I'm kind of beginning to realize just how ingrained those views were. I mean, an interesting snippet, in, in 1995, um, Russia and Ukraine were negotiating one of their first agreements of a, uh, of a gas transit, you know, an issue that, that's been a, a hot topic ever since. But in 1995, after uh, many years of, uh, of, of uh, kind of very ad hoc type day-to-day uh, operation of the, of the gas market, they decided to negotiate a, a more detailed fundamental treaty, and they asked the International Monetary Fund to act as observers. And so um, I went with the Ukrainian team and my colleague who was based in Moscow went with the Russian team and we sat there as international observers. And, and I recall um, one of the things that really surprised me was um, that, that, that kind of the attitude of the, of the Russian delegation. Um, and the delegation at the time was led by um, you know, uh, senior government officials who were considered to be liberals. Um, Chubayas, the deputy prime minister for, for the economy at the time, um, came in. Um, and their tone of, of discussion with the Ukrainians was kind of almost sort of infinite patience where they kept saying to Ukrainians, look, why are we even wasting time on this? This independence nonsense, that, that'll pass, you know. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do deals together. We'll do business together in the future. But it'll all be under one control anyway. So we'll, why, why are we doing this? And the fact that these supposedly liberal leaders were saying these things um, in, in front of, of foreign observers, uh, you know, at, at the time to me just seemed like a, I don't know, personal rudeness. But mm. now that I'm beginning to see the, the, this evolution, or think think about this evolution of um, uh, of the relationship between two countries but more clearly as a result of this war, it really strikes me that that the um, the, the imperial mentality was deeply ingrained. It's just that Zhirinovsky, as a as, as an extremist, was able to voice the kinds of things that others uh, knew not to mention in polite co- company. Right. So the mentality was clearly visible, but we probably didn't take it as seriously as we should have. I think I think that's right, and I think we we hoped that maybe it would kind of evolve away from it, mm. um, but clearly didn't. And I think, but but I think coming to to Ukraine on the other side, I mean, I I think that um, in a way, um, what what helped Ukraine a lot was the fact that 
you know, where, where Russia had started increasingly defining its nationalism as being that, that kind of revival of Russian empire, um, uh, U- Ukrainian nationalism was always defined by not being Russian. Hmm. Um, and so uh, not being Russian was actually a very helpful way of seeing the world because it opened, opened the country up to, to, to much closer integration with the rest of the world. Um, and, and made it a much more open society. Is that also a relationship, if we wanted to translate it a little bit into our part of the world, you have one big Russia and one smaller Russia. It's a bit like Australia and New Zealand. The smaller party has to assert itself and its uniqueness against a much larger neighbor. Um, I, I actually think that that's um, perhaps a more familiar parallel, but, but a closer parallel, is the relationship between the UK and Ireland. Mm-hmm. When I read about the, the, the period of uh, uh, the formation of the, of the Irish Republic and the, and, and, and the initial um, fight for independence in Ireland and the, and the British attitudes to it. To me, it seems um, actually very, very familiar uh, and very close to what I'm seeing in, in, in Russia and Ukraine now. You know, the, the elites of both countries were tightly integrated. Mm. Um, on the British side, they just couldn't see this idea of, of Irish independence because to them... The, the, the Irish weren't really another country. There were sort of these kind of funny country folks with a strange accent, which is exactly how Russians think of Ukrainians. But they, they didn't understand them as being a, a, a separate nation. And, and often the people who were most opposed to, uh, to Irish independence uh, in, in the UK were people with Irish origins. Um, and interestingly enough, I think the same is true in, the, uh, in Russia today, where often the most anti-Ukrainian politicians have Ukrainian origins. Because to some extent, they're, they're kind of seeing uh, the separation between the two countries as, as kind of personally somebody taking something away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this, this is very much, um, I mean, the, the way to understand, I think, what's happening there uh, in Ukraine now is it's very much a, a struggle for decolonization mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in an environment where the cultures and the countries were um, quite closely integrated. So, so it's, 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 a, it's a very painful form of decolonization much more painful than, um, say, um, India uh, leaving the British Empire. And that certainly wasn't painful. And since you visited so many times over 30 years, from what stage did Ukrainians actually believe that Russia was more than a hypothetical threat? I mean, I would imagine it would have happened in the early 2000s. So actually leading to the time when um, NATO and I think it was in Budapest, uh, signaled a potential NATO membership to Ukraine. When did Ukraine actually start perceiving Russia as a, not theoretical, but an actual threat? Um, I, th- I think there were always some people who, who saw the threat in Ukraine, but I, I don't think there was a, um, any, um, any, any sense of imminent threat or potential military conflict until 2014. Mm. Um, I mean, 2014, the, the time of the Euromaidan and, and then the Russian uh, invasion of Donetsk and, uh, and Luhansk and, uh, and the takeover of, of Crimea. I mean, that was the time when I think there, there was a sudden realization that this, is, uh, that, that, that this is serious. And until then, Ukraine was really demilitarizing very, very quickly. I mean, the Ukrainian army um, was, was largely non-existent. I mean, I'm not a military expert, but I was reading somewhere recently that um, in, in early 2014, Ukraine at most had um, about 6,000 troops that were, could be considered to be effective. Um, and, and so um, I think that what, what happened then was um, after that, um, in the, those events in the, um, 
uh, in eastern Ukraine in, in 2014. Um, initially, the, the, uh, the military capability was rebuilt entirely on through voluntary effort. Um, I mean, the, the, the official army wasn't um, um, wasn't really capable of doing anything. Um, and I mean, you saw uh, at that time walking around, you saw people collecting money to buy equipment for the army in front of supermarkets. You know, there were the nation boxes everywhere. People were volunteering. So, so the army was, was rebuilt from the ground up. Um, and interestingly, I think um, at the time, that felt very much a, a position of weakness. I mean, they're, I'm talking to, to friends in Ukraine, they kind of felt that they, they weren't defended, that, that you know, this, this need to, to, to rebuild military uh, through voluntary efforts suggested that the state wasn't capable of defending itself. Mm. Um, but actually, it turned out now, I think, with the invasion of Russia, that, that was one of uh, Ukraine's great hidden strengths. Um, for two reasons. One is that the army was rebuilt uh, completely anew, and so it didn't suffer from all the problems of the Soviet military system. I think the, the Russian army, having retained the Soviet machinery of, of government and of military command, um, has never been able to modernize its military, whereas Ukraine modernized just because it didn't really have to um, destroy uh, what, what was already destroyed. Mm. Um, but all of that started that, after 2014 only. That's out after 2014, yeah. And then the second element is um, it really built on on this uh, incredible self-organization of society. You know, it's very much a bottom-up. Um, and we saw this now with the, with the invasion uh, on the 24th of February where um, you know people were signing up for territorial defense units uh, and much of the defense was undertaken by, by local people um, as, as local volunteers. Let's uh, talk about it. Let's let's talk about the 24th of February invasion. Did you see it coming or did you, like so many others, including myself, think, well, nobody can be as irrational as trying to conquer the whole of Ukraine, um, yeah. foreseeing the consequences um, that that would bring onto Russia itself? So, um, I mean, the Americans warned us, the American Secret Service warned us, but there was many, many experts at the time saying, actually, Putin just wants to build up um, this threat. He probably wants to use it to negotiate some concessions that otherwise he wouldn't get. But nobody, um, well, not nobody, but many people actually didn't believe that he would make this um, threat serious. Yeah, I, 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 I was very much in the same. I, I thought that this was posturing uh, because I, I, I thought that the attack on Ukraine would be suicidal as it looks as like it is, it's turning yes. out to be for Russia. Um, and that it could not be, uh, it would just be utterly irrational. Yes. Um, but but I, I think, well, at least now when I think about this, I, I think my mistake was that I was applying um, kind of Soviet, um, I, I was imagining that the, that the modern Russia under Putin um, was more like the Soviet Union. The Soviet mm -hmm. Union, for all its problems, was a fairly rational country. Yes. Uh, with, uh, with institutions that were capable of, 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 of functioning um, in a sensible way. Um, I think that uh, what's amazing, what's now becoming um, kind of more and more obvious, is that uh, Putin believed his, uh, believed his own propaganda. One of the great strengths of the Soviet leaders was that they never believed their own propaganda. They knew there was nonsense. Yep. Um, whereas, whereas Putin fell into the, seems to have fallen into the trap of believing his own propaganda. So um, Putin is more like a Hitler. That's always a, a big mistake. So, so Putin is more like a Hitler, not a Stalin. I think that's right. I think I think that, that I think that's right. I think he's it suffers from megalomania and is motivated uh, by a kind of a vision of uh, of restoring uh, the imperial greatness. 
and believes that he understands how things work much better than anyone else. Mm. So we were totally shocked, of course, when that happened on the 24th of February, because we didn't see it coming. We, we thought Putin would be more rational. But then when it happened, what did you expect? Did you think he might have a chance of taking Kiev in the first couple of days? Or with your knowledge of the Russian army structures, did you think that was a complete miscalculation from the beginning? Again, I'm not a military expert, now, and obviously um, didn't know how, how well the Russian army would perform. What I did know, what I was convinced of, was that, first of all, that the Ukrainian army would perform quite well, and that, and that secondly, you would not get um, um, kind of, you know, you know the, the sort of the idea that, that uh, uh, I, I think Putin believed, and that uh, a lot of Russian propaganda carried, was that the Ukrainians were waiting to, to welcome uh, Russian forces to be reunited with the Russian, Russian nation. Mm -hmm. um, And, and, and I can tell you an interesting story, kind of one of the insights I had. So um, I, I frequently, um, when we were traveling to Kiev, my wife often comes with me, and she um, speaks a little bit of Russian, but not very well. And um, um, she was walking in the park while I was at a business meeting, and she met this um, woman, older woman, and she started talking to her. Um, and, and they kind of established communication, but they didn't quite understand each other. So she called me up and she said, look, when you finish, come, come to the park because I need you to help, um, uh, to help me. And so I, I went, went out and talked to this woman and it turned out she was a, an ethnically Russian woman who um, was living in, in Donetsk uh, at the time the events uh, in 2014 were, start, uh, were, were happening. Um, and she kind of, uh, after she saw the sort of people who were taking power in, in, in that region, decided she wanted to move to Ukraine. Um, and so she's been living in Ukraine um, uh, since uh, since 20, uh, early 2015, I think, um, in Kiev. And she uh, was militantly, militantly uh, patriotic towards Ukraine, uh, volunteering in, in hospitals, um, uh, training um, uh, with the territorial defense units. She was in her mid-60s. Um, and, and it was really interesting to see that as a, as a what seemed to be kind of a, a an expression of everyday attitude. Um, and, and so I, I was convinced that there would be a very uh, a strong performance from, from the Ukrainian army and, uh, and strong popular kind of uprising to, to resist, which is exactly what happened. What obviously I, I didn't know and couldn't judge was the, the extreme um, of a societal uh, and institutional collapse that, that happened in Russia and that projected itself on the Russian army. Mm. Um, You had, a, you, had a, you had a military that had everything stolen, um, uh, that, that, that had um, um, you know, the, the least educated, the least trained people uh, who joined the military, that, that had um, uh, incapable generals. I mean, just generally, just, just seemed to be um, just like an extraordinary, extraordinarily weak institution. Mm. If we're looking at the development of the war in those past um, one and a half months, you wrote two pieces for the Australian Financial Review, and I just want to read the headlines. On the 15th of March, you already concluded why Russia has achieved none of its strategic aims in Ukraine. So that was an article in which you summarized why the invasion didn't go according to plan and why Russia was very unlikely to win it. But then you went a step further. Another couple of weeks later, on the 3rd of April, you wrote why the West must mobilize to let Ukraine win the war. So it was no longer just about um, Russia not succeeding with their goals, but actually Ukraine now having a real chance of winning this, but for that needing Western support. Now that was on the 3rd of April. Now we have moved on another few days. We have in the meantime found out 
about the atrocities in Butcher and other places. We've heard about the potential use of chemical weapons now also. Where do you see the war now and where do you see the responsibility of the West in the current circumstances? I think it's absolutely essential for the West that Ukraine wins. I think that uh, um, anything that, that resembles Russian victory would be um, not, not just morally horrible thing, but uh, in, in, a, in a practical sense, in terms of Western security, in terms of um, any kind of hope for the continuation of a, of a, uh, a rules-based world order, that would be the end of it, really. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's essential that Ukraine wins. Um, I think Ukraine is clearly capable of winning in the sense of um, having the, the skills, the, the motivation, the, the, the capability of its personnel. Um, what it doesn't have is the, is the supply of resources and, and the access to, um, to the kind of equipment that's necessary to win. Um, I, I mean, even since, um, uh, even since uh, I, I wrote that article already, I think we've seen a, a big change in the attitudes of many countries and some, some, some serious weaponry is beginning to flow into Ukraine. I think the, um, uh, the, the passing of the Lend-Lease law in the U.S. is, is quite extraordinary. Um, uh, it's, it's the first time um, such legislation has been passed since the Second World War, and uh, it's uh, I think uh, you know you know provides a, uh, provides a basis for um, for Ukraine to to, to be equipped uh, to the level that that's, that's necessary. So, so in some ways, I think it's already moving in that direction. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's still it's not going to be a walkover. It's going to be a, a very very difficult fight, um, and. I have no doubt that when um, when the, the territories that are currently occupied by the Russian forces are recovered, that uh, we'll, we'll we'll find more of the same um, murders of civilians that that uh, uh, were seen in, in the territories that were left by the Russian forces in the north. I mean, unfortunately, that's that's the nature of of how the Russian army operates. So, yeah, I mean, all those all those events are, are, are deeply horrible, but I I don't know if anyone can really say that they weren't expected. Mm. Um, you know, when you have a, um, a society that's uh, permeated with nationalism and, and the soldiers are essentially given the carte blanche to, to um, you know, denazification in, in their languages to basically just kill anyone that you don't like, um, it's, very, it's very hard to expect anything else. Uh, I mean, I think some, some of it has, has been unexpected, not so much in its viciousness, but in its extraordinary pettiness um, in the fact that the, the soldiers... Uh, and some of the pictures that are coming out from um, from the areas north of Kiev, uh, where the soldiers were stealing everything, and uh, you know pictures of um, um, toilet bowls being tied to tanks as the tanks were retreating, that they were stealing toilet bowls from from houses. I mean, that that that, that, that kind of thing is just just mind blowing, and it's how pathetic it is. Mm. Um, but I, I I think that the unfortunately the the, the underlying violence is uh, was to be expected. So if Ukraine now has a real chance of winning the war. Where does that leave Putin? A, a dictator like him, a person in a personalized dictatorship like Russia is today, cannot survive such a military defeat. Um, I, th I think that's right, but it's hard to know exactly when or how that end would come because, um, I mean, obviously the, uh, the 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 mechanism of repression in Russia is very powerful, um, and the and the nationalist. Uh, hysteria that's been whipped up is, uh, is, is, is very strong. So um, it, it's not obvious. Well, I, let me put it differently. Uh, I, I certainly don't see any kind of liberal opposition um, ready to, to remove Putin. I mean, if he, if he is removed, he'll be removed by uh, a bunch of um, 
um, equally authoritarian characters who just probably have a slightly more realistic worldview. Um, so it's 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 hard to know how how that would play out. Um, I think that um, the hysteria that the 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 nationalist hysteria that's been whipped up in Russia, um, I think that certainly has the potential of turning inwards um, if uh, if the war is seen as a defeat. But at the same time, um, you know, given given the um, uh, the complete lack of information that uh, uh, that most Russian people have, apart from the um, kind of official sources of, uh, of of information, television channels, um, you know, th- there may well be some ways in which um, Putin could dress all this up as uh, as a victory. You know, you've seen all that nonsense about um, biological labs um, and um, birds trained to to fly viruses to Russia. So you can declare that you've achieved a great victory of eliminating those birds. You know, so. Uh, it's not that difficult, I think, for a dictator to try to turn a defeat into victory. Do you think that there's any chance that the war will come to an end just in time for the big military parade that Russia always holds on the 9th of May each year? Is that the final date by which Putin has to conclude this for his, for his own sake? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think it, it, it does have a... Um, the, the, the 9th of May parade does have a kind of a, an important almost religious role in, in, in the Russian calendar. Um, but uh, I, I can see a desire to conclude with a victory, um, to make it a victory parade. But if there's no visible victory, I, I, I don't think the date will necessarily make a difference. Okay, just finally then, what is your prediction for the next, say, two or three weeks? And then beyond that, actually, for the next years, Because, I mean, even if the war is over, assuming that Ukraine will win, the country is destroyed. It will probably take hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild, and it will take many, many years to even get back to where it was before. What is your prediction? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bypass the next few weeks because I, I, I obviously don't know. I don't see myself mm. as a military expert. Mm. Um, but in terms of, of the recovery, I mean, the, the, the great thing is that um, people in, in Ukraine are already beginning to think about uh, about the recovery. And uh, I'm actually, I feel very privileged to, to be working with a team in the, um, in the Ministry of Infrastructure in Ukraine. Uh, at the moment, it's still somewhat informal. We're meeting a couple of times a week, um, but we're beginning to, to discuss the, the, the institutional change that are needed to, to speed up reconstruction. There's a, there's a great focus on um, um, improving procurement, making things more efficient, Uh, realizing that the, the 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 pace of construction is going to be um, in, in, uh, incredibly high, and and you can't just go through the kind of normal procurement processes that were in place before. So, so it's great to, to see people already turning their minds to that and thinking about it. I think I think clearly that um, uh, Ukraine will need help, and uh, and and I hope that that the world doesn't that, that doesn't kind of lose interest and lose momentum um, in supporting Ukraine's recovery. Um, I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, and I actually hate saying it because because it's uh, uh, you know, this war is very evil, and uh, and uh, and uh, a, a lot of people are dying. But um, in many ways, I think for um, in terms of Ukraine's national development, this war will enormously accelerate um, because what this war is doing is very rapidly helping Ukraine rid itself of the remnants of, uh, of Soviet institutions, of Soviet thinking. Um, it's, it's modernizing by, 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 by the day. 
Uh, and I see that, I mean, we're seeing that obviously in the, in the military performance and on the news every day, but I'm seeing that in, in, in civil society in the way that, that the, the attitudes um, are, are changing and the, uh, the approach to, um, to, to governance is changing uh, and, the, and the internal conversations. I think you'll see Ukraine emerge with a lot less corruption um, than it had before the war. I mean, for you know, all, all the good things that were happening there, there was definitely a lot of corruption. Uh, I think you'll see um, it uh, internally become a much more law-binding society. I think uh, I think it'll be um, politically kind of more stable in the sense that there will be uh, there'll be high degree of political competition, but it'll be around a much more narrow and agreed set of national objectives. You know, I think what was happening before is that com- uh, political competition before was um, in part between parties that had incompatible objectives. Whereas I think what you'll see after after this war, there'll be a lot of commonality in the way that in um, what people want to achieve, they'll just be competing for um, you know, selling their vision of how to get there. Mm. Well, in the middle of this horrible war, with all the atrocities uh, we have seen, that's probably the most optimistic way in which we could end this conversation by thinking about the eventual recovery and what it might actually do for Ukraine. And I think until we get to that, I think it would be good to continue the conversation another time and see where we got to by then. Let's hope for a quick end to this war and then for the success of Ukraine in the ensuing recovery. But for now, thank you, Alex, for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I hope we can call um, on your expertise again in the future. Thank you, Oliver. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you.